BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona 500. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags, honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison. Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back to another edition of MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. On this episode, we'll travel from the shortest and slowest track on the schedule, Martinsville Speedway, to the longest and fastest, Talladega Super Speedway, where Rusty Wallace will give us the inside story on his horrific crash. We'll also swing out west to the first road course race of 93 at Sonoma Raceway in Northern California. The month of April drew to a close with a sold-out crowd at the half-mile Martinsville Speedway in Martinsville, Virginia. It is a standing-room-only crowd here this afternoon. They've been pouring into the Speedway since almost daybreak here this morning. There's not a seat left in the place, and they're all here for the last short track race for a while, Eli. And you can bet one thing, the Winston Cup drivers will sure let it all hang out because this is the last time they'll be on a short track until about the middle of August, I guess. Rusty Wallace entered the Haynes 500 on a roll with victories in the previous two races at Bristol and North Wilkesboro. It's clear to say that expectations were high for the next short track on the schedule. I remember Martinsville, that was one of my better tracks. Real good track for me. I went in there with this setup that was always something that worked good. And I never went into that track feeling like I was chasing my tail. I knew that I had to race that track. I knew I had to take care of my brakes because brakes weren't developed back then. People would watch me come down the front straight when I would let off the gas at the start-finish line. I would get a big lead. Penske would come on the radio and go, what's going on? I said, I'm throttling back. He goes, oh, boy, okay, okay. And he just wouldn't bother me. I know he's like, I know what he's doing. And what throttling back meant, I wouldn't bomb the car down in the corner because I didn't want to hurt the brakes. And also the second thing was if I got off the brake, uh, got off earlier, I could just let it coast in the corner and stay off the brakes. And when it was time to race, then I could get on it because I had good brakes then and go after it. But if I got a good lead and got out ahead of the pack, then I could afford just to do those type of things, like get out of the throttle earlier. So I wouldn't go out there like they do nowadays and just run every lap as hard as I could. It was always a calculated deal. Run when you need to run. Don't run when you don't have to run. 
and you know a pair of 200 pound springs were always perfect they always worked a pair of 700 pound springs in the front always worked good every time i varied from that i got myself in trouble so i always went in there with this base setup that i had base shock absorber setups that i had and i actually used those setups and tweaked on that the whole time until really that setup kind of quit work and then we had to start developing other things and that's when we started going back to martinsville testing because I never used to test at Martinsville. But then when I felt like I was, I was losing my grip on everything, I would start testing again and go, wow, this we needed this different and we needed that different. But I always went into Martinsville with a lot of confidence. And one fun thing was I would walk through the gate of that place and Mark Martin would look up and go, Rusty's going to win this race. You know, then he would say, hey, man, what's the setup? And Earnhardt, he used to come to me all the time. Hey, man, what's the setup? What are you running there? Come on. You know, we, you know, we all drive these things different. Help me out. And... Um, and I would tell them some setups, but they, we all drive the cars different. So, I, especially Mark, I might fool around with Earnhardt a little bit. And, you know, <laughs> if, if it was a, you know, a, a 200-pound spring or a 225-pound spring I was running, I might tell him it was a 250 or something. But I never stretch the truth of Mark Martin because him and I grew up together. And that dude, he could look me right in the eye and tell if I was messing with him or not. And I never would either. So, whether it was Alan Quickie or Mark Martin, I never ever lied to those guys about setups never did i kind of loved messing with earnhardt because you know that's a guy that would take your money and run and not feel bad about it at all (laughs) the haynes 500 started with jeff bodine on the front row for the second straight week but just like the previous event his run at the front would be short-lived side by side for the lead again in turn one it's trickling on the outside jeff bodine down low kyle petty tries to move the inside hits bodine spins him around to the inside kyle takes over the second spot bodine tries to refire his car yeah another another uh tough start to a race now on the pole and uh had a great motorcraft ford uh and uh it looked like Kyle Petty got into the back of me a little bit turned me around coming off turn two fortunately no one hit me I didn't hit anything uh we just spun around and uh, like Joey Chitwood used to do and just kept on trucking uh finished 10th or something in the race but another disappointing day for uh for me, for the Motorcraft Ford team, uh, starting on the pole, we thought we had a good chance at winning. To no surprise, Rusty Wallace dominated the event by leading 409 of the 500 laps. But a caution with two to go gave Davey Allison a chance to catch Wallace and make a bid for the win. Trouble for Morgan Shepard. Something breaks. He goes hard into the outside wall. There is caution on the speedway. The s- something broke on the Sitco Ford. Morgan was between turns three and four. The car made a hard right-hand turn and went nose first into the outside retaining wall. A vicious lick that time. He was at full speed running in 16th spot. Here come the leader to the start-finish line and Rusty Wallace has beaten Davey Allison back to the stripe to take the caution and that might well have done it for the day. I don't know if they'll be able to remove the Morgan Shepard car nor the debris in the next couple of minutes here and that's all that remains on this racetrack. Davey Allison's crew chief Larry McReynolds recalled the hard work that the Robert Yates Racing team invested just to keep brakes on the car. Yeah, I had obviously been with, with the 28 car for over two years and I had already been through four Martinsville races with Davey and there was just something about Martinsville and the last name Allison it just didn't mix you know Bobby I don't think ever won a race at Martinsville Donnie never won a race at Martinsville 
And just something about that place that I'm sure it was coincidental, but it just it just didn't click with the Allisons. And we would go up there and we would be fast, but we would qualify terrible. And then we'd get the thing going for the race, but because back then the brake packages were just not that good because we were starting so deep in the field that we'd burn the brakes off the car. And, we'd, and of course, the weak link would always be the beat of the tire. We would blow a tire and hit the wall. I, I think it happened two or three times in those first three or four races that I was with Davey. For the Davey Allison pit, Larry, you've got 35 laps to do it. Can you catch Rusty Wallace? be honest with you, Jim. I mean, I'd like to get Rusty Wallace to win this race, but if that Texaco have them forward running at the lap 500 without a brake failure, I'll feel like we've won this thing. It became a mission for us to figure out our issues at Martinsville, and I felt like one of the issues was were qualifying. If we could qualify better, then it would, it would lead to a better race. So, a few weeks before the Martinsville race was Easter weekend, an off weekend. And we took two cars and a truckload of folks, including some people from the brake companies, and we went up to Martinsville and we tested for three days. We tested Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, which would be Good Friday before Easter. I have no idea how many laps we ran. But we left there, it's like we have figured this deal out. I think we know how to come back and qualify well, and I think we know how we need to take care of these brakes, and I think we've hit on something, a much better brake package for this place because, again, it's not like today. Nobody really has, for the most part, brake issues at Martinsville. The packages are so good. But back then, it was a challenge to keep brakes on the race car. So sure enough, we went back, qualified good, qualified up inside the top 10. And it's almost the same today. When you qualify well at Martinsville, it just sets the tempo for the race. And we ran up front the entire race. And you're right. The caution came out, and he almost beat. That's when we used to race back to the caution. He almost beat Rusty back to the flag. And and But to me... To finish second at Martinsville with Davey Allison, with what I had experienced the first four races with him, um, it it was almost, I I promise you, Rusty Wallace's crew didn't feel any better than we did. Well, you talk about a smile on the face. Rusty Wallace has got one. Rusty, Martinsville has been a good track for you, but you hadn't won here since 1986, but you really dominated today. My whole entire team has just worked wonderful again together, and Roger Penske was here and all of them, so... It's a great day for the Miller Daniel Draft Pontiac, AC, Mobile Oil, and Goodyear. Tires were great. It's just a three in a row, man. I just can't hardly believe it, but the car was that strong all day long. For Bobby Labonte, the trip home was more memorable than the race itself. I flew home that night in my Baron, and um, the wheels didn't go down when I landed, so we had to do a crash landing at, at Winston-Salem Airport on Sunday night. So I remember that because we left and the I remember hearing a pop in the in the wheels in the in the landing gear and we went to land in Lexington and the, the gear wouldn't go down. So we tried everything to get the gear to get, go down. It wouldn't go down, and we had to run some fuel off, fly around, r- burn fuel off. And we went into Winston and we glided in. I turned the fuel off and and my pilot glided us in and we just landed. And the fire department come down and hosed off the plane and all that stuff. And we jumped out and uh, bypassed all the media because they were there. And I woke up at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock the next morning. I called my dad and told him what happened. I woke up at 7 o'clock the next morning 
and saw it on the news. And of course, Alan just passed away, you know, several a few weeks before that. And so it's like, and you know, my deal wasn't a big deal, but it was big enough to make the news. And Mark Martin called me and said, "Dude, I'd I'd had a heart attack, you know, if that would have happened to me." And I'm like, so it kind of went like, "Dang, that was close," you know. So a lot of stuff going on, you know. Um, I think the race were probably like eight laps down. I don't know, you know, back in back at that time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, going home was more of a trick for me than the actual race itself. After winning three in a row and his fourth of the 1993 season, Rusty Wallace had complete command of the point standings. But that would all change at Talladega. Good afternoon, everyone, from the Talladega Super Speedway. We're set to go racing in the Winston 500 here this afternoon. Overcast skies most of the morning, but uh, weather-wise, if it stays like this, it'll be a perfect day to go racing. The race weekend began with Dale Earnhardt winning the pole for the Winston. 500. Dale, a great lap, 192.355, almost uh, three miles an hour better than the rest of the field. Well, that's awful good lap qualifying. The guys did a great job. Uh, you know, the car's running great. We'll see what we can do here in the race. Everybody gets together and goes to draft, and it'll change the program pretty much. So we just hang on and uh, get out, get through the first 150 or so laps and then work for that end, end part there. That's what we're after, get, in, get to that, and then we'll try to win the race. Well, of course, you're up there in the points again this year, but this puts you in one of your favorite races, the Bush Clash, again next year. Well, it does, and uh, that's a race we all enjoy. And matter of fact, this car won that race this year, so we're running her here, and she sat on the pole and got us back in the Bush Clash, so we can call this our Bush Clash car. And the field now begins to line up tightly two by two. The fans, some 130,000 strong, begin to roar for their favorites as the ninth race of the year, the Winston 500 at Talladega, is about to get the green. Here's Barney Hall. 1,200 feet away from the start finish line. Green flag goes in the air. For Rusty Wallace, chances of winning his fourth in a row looked strong for most of the 188 lap clash. So wouldn't this be a story if Rusty Wallace could win it again after dominating on the short tracks, going from the shortest track of the uh, circuit, Martinsville to the biggest here at Talladega. would be quite a story. Oh, you win three in a row like we had already, and you're going for a fourth. It doesn't make a difference with what track you're at. I mean, no, going into Talladega, I've already said that that was one of my most concerning racetracks. But still, when you had momentum on your side, it, it, it really, the most important thing you're thinking about then is continuing that momentum and winning that fourth race, no matter what track you're going at. So I will tell you, going at that track, I was concerned because, my gosh, there's so many wrecks and I didn't want to be part of it. But as the race got going, it, came, it became real clear that I really had probably one of the best cars I've ever had at Talladega, Alabama. The car was fast, and I'm not just hanging on by the draft. I'm actually up there now pulling the train and leading, and that was really, really important to me. And the other thing that was so cool, I look at my rearview mirror, and it's Earnhardt. And I'm thinking to myself, man, he is the master at Daytona and Talladega, and here I am pulling this train, leading this thing. And Earnhardt, probably the best, is right on my tail. And we're getting it done. So um, it was it was a great race. Everything went great until right there at the very end when it started raining. Caution on the speedway. It is raining in Talladega, Alabama. A shower has just broken out. When it started raining, they red flagged it. And I remember sitting there, Earnhardt come up to me during the red flag. And he said, look, he said, man, when they go back to green, this can be really tough. He says, because they are going to just blow past us on the right side and the left side because you know when you're leading the race at Talladega you're the one pushing all the air and those guys behind us going to be all tied up tight together they're going to get a real good draft and I know they're going to shoot right past us and he said I'll work with you 
you know, for us to get back into the lead. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I trust you or not, man, because this guy is really, he's amazing, you know, in those speedways and stuff. But he was right. The rain happened. The rain happened. Uh, we went back to green. And as soon as we went back to green after the track dried out, right off the bat, here comes Ernie Irvin and a host of other guys drafting right past us. And I think I went back to sixth, seventh, or eighth or something like that. And I'm like, my gosh. Ernie Irvin drops to the inside. He's right up on the rear deck of Earnhardt. Irvin dives to the inside. Now pulls up alongside Earnhardt. The battle for the lead in turn two. Ernie Irvin's out in front. I couldn't believe how we flew. We we went from leading all the way back to seventh or eighth, just like Earnhardt said we would. And then, boy, here we got hooked up and we started flying right back through the field. Got back up to fourth, checkered flags waving. I look in my mirror and here's Earnhardt right on my tail and he goes down low to block or to pass me. And I said, oh no, you don't. I pull down to block him. When I pull down to block him, my left rear quarter panel and his right front fender got together turned my car sideways and that thing started flying. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It barrel rolls three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times down the main straightaway. Comes to a rest on its wheels. Looking so similar to the problems that he had at Daytona. That car went in the air probably about 35 to 40 feet. All I remember about the wreck is the car come out of the sky and it landed on its nose. You know, really high rate of speed. It's like dropping a rock out of the sky and this hitting the ground. It came out of the sky and landed on its nose and, I, and when it landed my hands obviously were on the steering wheel still and when it landed it broke my wrist back. It broke my wrist off on the left my left wrist and I still got a pin on my wrist right now about 12 inches long from that wreck and it knocked me out and I was completely lights out. But you know one thing that I didn't know the car did as it was flipping I it it went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line, upside down, on my roof, and I still think I finished, you know, six, right? Finished six, upside down on my roof, flying across the line, which one of the most dramatic things in the world when you go back and look at it on the videos. It was really something, but uh, really terrible wreck. You know, it broke my wrist. Uh, it was a... A, a, a defining moment in the champ championship hunt that particular race was. Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, Andy Petrie. As we're coming through the trial, I remember watching this, and I saw Rusty pull down, you know, basically to block Dale, knowing he was going to make a run to the to the start-finish line. And, and when he did that, Dale had a little momentum, got into the back of him, and went out of sight from us flipping. Uh, scary thing. I mean, it really, really was. And, you know, could, couldn't really talk to Dale. I could hear him on the radio just really upset because of what happened. He saw, the, you know, his mirror saw this happening. And he, I was at the gas pumps waiting for him to get there because we still finished in the top five. And when he wasn't there yet, and he had stopped on the track to check on Rusty because he really, him and Rusty were good friends. I know we had a lot of run-ins with him, but he and Rusty were good friends, and he, it really bothered him more than I'd ever seen him bothered. And, uh, so he checked on him, and he was okay. He was, I think he hurt his wrist or something. But he gets in the car, then drives to the gas pumps where I'm waiting on him. And when he got to the gas pumps, I, I said, where, where, where are you going? He said, I was checking on Rusty. And his eyes, and he's looking right at me, he's shaking his head, and it's like, you know, I thought I, I thought I killed him. You know, it really it, it bothered him. But, um, you know, that's just the kind of guy he was. I mean, he's a hard-nosed racer, but he didn't. he never wanted something like that to happen. Wallace recalls how Dale Earnhardt reached out to him 
later that evening. I was in a hospital most of that week, I guess, but he he actually reached out to us that night, and um, he was really upset. He thought that he killed me. He really did. He thought that he watched me lose my life in that wreck because it was so violent. The body flew off of it. The motor flew out of the car. It was just a real horrific wreck, and uh, he was really scared. And uh, watching him... You know, come over to the car and his interviews. It was pretty moving. You know, here's here's a tough guy, dresses in black everywhere he goes. Nothing scares him, nothing bothers him, but except that wreck. That wreck really bothered him because I, he called up and said, "Man, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. You know that we got together like that." And it was it was part my fault and part his fault. We both took kind of equal blame on it. And uh, but yeah, that was the one where he thought, uh, you know, that we he wasn't gonna have a buddy no more. Wallace's brother, Kenny, ran close behind as the wreck ensued. I saw it all. And let me take you back months before that. So for the Daytona 500 in 1993, you know, I watched my brother flip end over end over end in front of me for the Daytona 500, right? So I watched Rusty get roughed up for the Daytona 500. Now we fast forward in 1993 and I'm running good at Talladega. I'm running really good. And we are in one of those super speedway packs where I think I'm running fifth. But by the time you get an aerial view, I'm running 14th because we're all jammed on top of each other. And we're, we're at the checkered flag. We're coming through the trival. And I saw Earnhardt squeezing Rusty is what I remember. And, uh, you know, then I just remember seeing Rusty, you know, flip. And, uh, you know, flip end over end over end. And, uh, you know, the, the the situation with me and my brothers is that I am different than most people. I literally love my brothers. You know what I mean? Once again, this could be something considered corny. But here I am, 54 years old, and I've always loved my brother Rusty and my brother Mike. My brothers have been good to me. You know, when I was a kid, they always looked after me. I mean, if it's not for Rusty, I I don't even make it to NASCAR. Uh, My brother Mike always took care of me. So when Rusty, um, uh, when he wrecked badly in both the Daytona 500 that year and uh, Talladega, I'm a little bit like, you know, Davey Allison. I'm going to stop my car and get out. Uh, I don't remember if I did that or not, but... You know, I was holding my breath and really upset about it. Rush Racing's Mark Martin witnessed the melee as well. Scared the fool out of me. I'm um, really pretty much fearless guy myself, except I have a, a phobia of turning over. And uh, Rusty and I had more history than even than Alan and I. Uh, Rusty and I had history all the way back as teenagers, uh, fierce competitors, pretty friendly too. You know, fierce competitors, tremendous re- respect, uh, traded information anytime uh, one of us was not running well, we were comfortable coming up to the other and asking them what they had in their car and what they were doing. And we would tell each other the truth. Sometimes we wish we didn't need to or have to, but we knew that if we didn't tell the truth, then when we were in trouble, we wouldn't get this, you know, get the same. So we did that from 1977 all the way to his retirement. Um, so I tell you all that because, you know, I 
was more connected to Rusty than I was the average driver. We had more history than anybody that I can think of in NASCAR. Once the dust had settled, Ernie Irvin was celebrating in victory lane. You know, i got to ask, uh, what were you thinking about with two laps to go? And then what did you see for the next two laps? Well, you know, the first thing I was thinking about is I was wanting to lay back on the start some, and, and hopefully me and Mark could get a run at the, the front two cars, you know, Dale and um, Rusty. And it just happened that we did get laid back some, and uh, lap cars were in the, on the inside drafting with the leaders. We had to get some good shots on the outside. Um, you know, then about the time Mark caught them, Rusty went to block him. I just happened to go low. Then all I was to contend with was Dale, and we collided pretty good down there in turn one. And didn't even see what happened to Rusty. Our main concern is, you know, first thing I asked was if Rusty's all right, and hadn't really got to find out yet. But, um, you know, I'm a Rusty Wallace fan just like everybody else is, and he's been having one heck of a year, and we, we want to see him back next week too. Following Talladega, Cup Series teams enjoyed a two-week hiatus to catch their breath before heading out west to Sears Point International Raceway in Sonoma, California. Over the break, Jeff Bodine announced to NASCAR Nation that he would purchase the late Alan Kulwicki's race team. Veteran team owner Felix Sabatis was a major influence on that decision. It was soon after Alan's death, uh, Felix uh, saw him at the racetrack. He said, you know, you need to buy that race team. I said, what? He said, yeah. You know, they, everyone knew I was a hands-on kind of guy and uh, liked to... Uh, uh, be involved with the teams that I was with and I was innovative I liked to design I always designed built my own race cars coming up through the ranks and yeah he said you need to have this team and so uh, went home to talk to my kid's mother about it and we talked and chatted and tried to figure things out and got advice from other people talked more with Felix and of course uh, the late Payne Stewart was involved he was actually trying to buy the team also and uh, but Mr. Quickie did want a, a real racer to have the team and so I, I had a little edge there but we put a we put a plan together with Mr. Quickie and with Felix and uh, uh, Mr. Quickie accepted it uh, it was uh, we had some bonuses in there and performance bonuses and all that and fortunately we had a great year in uh, 94 and uh, so Mr. Quickie and uh, his wife were very happy with the way things went. And uh, so it was really, <laughs> you know, I love being a car owner and a driver, but uh, I, had, I had a lot of people helping me do that. And uh, uh, unfortunately, through the years, we had some sponsorship problems, and that's, that's why uh, uh, in 90... Uh, 798 we had to get some help get some uh, partners involved and that was pretty much the end of me being an owner in a, with a cup team and unfortunately I loved it and if things had worked out the way they should have I might still be a car owner for Kowicki's surviving team members it was a blessing to have another successful driver at the helm of their championship organization yeah it was really a 180 degree turn for everyone Paul Andrews and the whole team uh, Alan was a hands-on guy you know really got into everything and kept his eyes on everything I was a hands-on guy but I let people do what they're hired to do do their jobs and uh, yeah uh, they accepted me really well, the team. Uh, they were happy that I was uh, the buyer. Other folks were looking at trying to buy it, but 
Uh, Mr. Quickie wanted a, a racer to have the team, and so he uh, he chose me to take it over. And uh, uh, but it was a smooth transition, uh, tough time for everybody. It, you know, we didn't forget. We kept kept the number, kept Allen's uh, office exactly the way when he left it. Uh, everything was in there, and so people could look and remember. Alan uh, is a great champion and a great race driver. When the teams arrived at Sears Point, the main topic of conversation was the infamous Wallace Earnhardt Talladega Donnybrook. Still, you had a after a week before last at Talladega, you got uh, you you had to race one. I mean, you were the quickest car there. You ended up not winning a thing, and a little bit of a controversy at the end of it. What do y'all think about during the week while while something like that's going on? You ready for the race, or or is it just kind of pondered? Well, it really uh, was concerned how rusty was the first part of the week until uh, he got out of the hospital and got his wrist worked on and felt like he could maybe run the start this race and run it. I felt better after that. Uh, it is really a tough first first part of that week. And uh, once we seen he was going to be okay and, you know, we felt like uh, he'd be able to race out here and, you know, I felt better. But, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, Something you try to put behind you. He and I talked a couple times uh, through the week and, uh, you know, talked about it and talked about what happened and then sort of got it behind us. But uh, that was a bad deal, and uh, hopefully something like that doesn't happen again. With a broken wrist, Wallace wasn't sure if he would even be able to finish the Safe Mart 300. I remember Roger had a conversation with Scott Sharp. Talked to Scott. Scott's a real good road racer. And he came out there uh, and standing ready to go to jump in the car. And I think he probably expected to get in the car because, you know, we had them all fitted up, had them all ready to go, we had track time, the whole thing. And uh, I got rolling, and I said, man, I'm feeling good. I keep on going. But I came past the start-finish line, went up into turn two, the right-hander. And when I got up there... Something went wrong. I got loose or started wheel hopping or something, and I grabbed the transmission to get it down in a second gear real quick. And when I did that, uh, I tore the transmission out of the car. Here comes Rusty Wallace now, limping down into turn number three. Smoke coming from all around his car. Does not sound like he's underpowered as he bypasses us. Smoke billowing out of the Miller Genuine Draft car. And it was all because I couldn't back steer the car and correct it, right, because of this stupid brace that was on my left hand. I remember it getting caught up in the wheel when I was back steering, going up into turn two because I was wheel hopping and got loose. And I'm trying to get the car under control. So I just reach up and I grab the shift and I just jerked it down to second gear to try to get get the car to slow and and, and that's that was the second gear corner anyway. And but I, I pulled it too hard and I broke the it broke second out of the car and cost us a whole pile of points and that's where everything started spiraling downhill in the points. At Richard Childress Racing, Dale Earnhardt's crew chief Andy Petrie regarded the Sears Point clash as an important one. That was actually the first new car <clears throat> from start to finish that was built, you know, that I built as a crew chief here. Um, up to that point, we've been running some of the cars they had been that were in the stable that were we were redoing stuff, and but this was the first brand new car from the ground up, and. Um, Actually, I was pretty nervous going into the weekend. I've told the story many times, but I felt like it was a key turning point in my career because if this this particular car doesn't run well, I'm done, right? Because I've changed everything. I mean, the way the car was built from front to back was different. And uh, got a little some blowback from some of the guys that had been here and experienced a lot of success with what they had had. So doing all this new stuff, uh, they were skeptical. And 
So we, we show up, and I remember getting on the hauler for the first practice session. Richard was already up there timing cars, and a bunch of cars had already been out. And so we go out and go around the track, and I start my watch, and he goes around the track, takes a minute or two to get around, and he's coming back into sight, and I'm looking at my watch, and as I look at my watch, my hand's shaking. Now, seriously, I, was, I thought this is, you know, my career's on the line with this thing. And so my hand is shaking, and I hit the stopwatch when it comes across the line. I look at the time, and I realize that, you know, we only go there once a year. I didn't know what a good time was. <laughs> I'd forgotten. Right? So I look up at Richard. I, feel, I think I was about in tears. I said, is that, is that good? <laughs> he goes, yeah, 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 that's good. <laughs> but, and we ended up sitting on the pole. And, um, and had really the best car of the whole race. And I think we got tangled up on a restart where I think we were the leader, but there were cars that were on the tail end of the lead lap, and they let, it was a single-file restart back then, so they let them start in front of us. And that's how we got tangled up with that. And one car spins coming off the corner. It's Tommy Kendall directly ahead of the race leader. Some damage visible on Earnhardt's car now as he continues to fade back into the field as the leader, Bodine, works his way down through the gearbox and on the brakes into turn number seven. Earnhardt way back in the pack as we see his car come closer into view. There's damage on the right front corner of the car. The sheet metal is all crushed in around the tire. The hood is buckled up. The tire is still up and rolling, but Earnhardt's got some significant damage in the right front. Make pit stop removed the right front fender we had to change the toe the towing got really knocked out of whack we you know we recovered well by changing that team worked great it was like you know we did all we could do in the pits and then he went back out there and drove back into the front in spite of his damaged race car dale earnhardt managed to work his way back up to the front landing sixth and with rusty's troubles on the twisting road course the finish was strong enough to reclaim the top spot in the point standings when it came down to the final lap, a three-way battle for the lead developed between Ricky Rudd, Ernie Irvin, and Jeff Bodine. A knot of cars coming off the corner and up onto the straightaway down to the entrance of turn number seven. Irvin now in second, goes to the outside of Jeff Bodine. Late on the brakes, Bodine protects the inside, locks the right front tire up. He'll slide up in front of Irvin, single file off the corner. Bodine, Irvin, Rudd down the hill. Morgan McClure Racing's Ernie Irvin. The Kodak car was always fast on the road course, and you know, I told Tony Glover, I said, one pla- two places I really, really don't run good at, Road Course and, um, and Pocono. He says, you just haven't been in the right car. And I don't know if you know Tony, but he was just always just as real calm. He says, you know, let me tell you, when we get our car done, you're going to be a good road racer. And sure enough, it was, it was exactly what he said. Jeff Bodine, if he can hold off some of the best road racers in this business, he will have earned this one. Through turn 11, Bodine cleanly through. He'll straighten away towards the pit straight. Just a straightaway separating Jeff Bodine from the win. The motorcraft crew goes out to the wall. They're jumping and cheering. Jeff Bodine wins. Two weeks before going out there, I'd called Travis Carter and Donnie Wingle up. Uh, they were co-crew chiefs. And... Uh, told them I, I really thought we could win the race but we needed to do something to the car and they said well what what do you want to do I said well we need to we need to put in a, a rear anti-roll bar rear anti-sway bar and uh, no one was using them I tried one earlier in my career I ran it in my modifieds and late models and then I tried one with Rick Henrik but he he made me take it off and so I was kind of holding this thing in the background and uh even though I knew I wasn't going to be with the 15 car for the following year, I, I, I wanted to win. 
and uh, and like I said, I told Danny and Travis, put this on. I I drew it out for them, told them what to do, how to put it on, and uh, of course we all knew <laughs> we couldn't tell Bud because Bud loved Bud to death. He was a great man, great gentleman, patriotic guy, but he was getting old and he was a little set in his ways. And so he didn't like to see new things on his race car. And uh, so we, we decided not to tell Bud. Donnie and uh, Travis built a sway bar at night when everyone else had gone home and they put it on a car when everyone else has gone, everyone else has gone home. Of course, some of the guys saw it, of course, working on a car. But uh, so we showed up in uh, Sonoma with it, running good. The inspectors heard about it. I came over, and there was no rule. There wasn't a. We didn't break the rules. We weren't doing anything wrong. But they were pretty uh, apprehensive about letting us run it. But I said, well, there's no rules, you know. It's every car in the United States of America has a rear end sway bar. It's nothing, no big invention. It's they're out there. So they let us run it, and uh, I really give that was the one thing we needed to win that race. The win would be the final NASCAR Cup Series victory for NASCAR Hall of Fame car owner Bud Moore. Next week on MRN Presents, the 1993 season, 25 years later, we'll hear the inside story on a controversial finish in the Charlotte All-Star Race. There's only another example of seven times out of ten when Dale Earnhardt won, he didn't have the fastest car, and he didn't have the fastest car in that race, uh, but he won, and um, that was one of Dale Earnhardt's MOs, and yeah, that pissed you off. Who, who likes getting out drove? Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Culbreth. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. to home and auto repair. Do it with Craftsman. Find the tools, equipment, and storage you need at your local Lowe's, Ace Hardware, or Craftsman.com.